There's growing evidence that the COVID-19 pandemic is harming our mental health. After a year that will remain synonymous with anxiety, isolation, endless devastating news reports, and for too many, loss, these long-term effects on our well-being may not be surprising. However, despite our growing collective pessimism about the state of the world, when it comes to our own lives, research suggests we are generally optimistic. You might expect that this private hope would have been battered by the year gone by, and yet it remains resilient. Can optimism improve our well-being? And beyond the effects it has on us as individuals, is optimism an accurate perspective through which to see what can often seem like an overwhelming and unstable world? Welcome to LSE IQ. I'm Natalie Abbott, and this is the podcast where we ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. In this episode, I ask, should we be optimistic? Being optimistic might mean more than just having a sunny disposition or choosing to see the glass half full. In fact, optimism may be hardwired into many of us. I spoke to Dr. Tali Sharat, Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at University College London and author of The Optimism Bias. I asked her to tell me about this cognitive trait. Optimism is having positive expectations of the future. And optimism bias is having positive expectations of the future that are uh, more positive than the evidence should cause us to expect. And usually this means overestimating the likelihood of positive events happening in your life and underestimating the likelihood of negative events happening in your life. For example, people tend to overestimate what salary they would get upon graduation. We tend to think we will have especially talented kids. We uh, expect professional success. And then we tend to underestimate the negative consequences. For example, people uh, hugely underestimate their likelihood of divorce, which is around 40% on average in the population. People underestimate the likelihood of being ill, of being in an accident. We see that people are overly optimistic about how likely they are to gain in, in a gamble or in a lottery. How many of us exhibit this and is there any kind of demographic element or is it an international phenomenon? Optimism and optimism bias have been shown in many different countries and in different cultures. About 80% of the population have some form of optimism bias and 20% don't exhibit that. Within the 20% who don't exhibit an optimism bias, half of these 20% usually have some form of depression, either mild or severe depression. People with severe depression actually have a pessimism bias by which they overestimate the likelihood of experiencing negative events in their lives and underestimate the likelihood of experiencing positive events in their lives. But within the 80% that that do have an optimism bias, first of all, there's a lot of individual differences. Uh, Most individuals have this mild optimism bias, but you do have some people with extreme optimism bias. The other thing that matters a lot is age. We see that the optimism bias follows a U-shaped curve with age, very similar to happiness. So um, optimism bias is largest in kids and teenagers, and then it goes down, down, down. Um, It is smallest in midlife, and then it starts growing again as we get older. And again, in the elderly, we actually see a large optimism bias. The optimism bias, it's linked to an evolutionary rationale 
which basically lies in the fact that we tend to overestimate negative information, so we are more attentive to negative information out there. An optimism bias can be simply conceptualized as a coping mechanism to face that negative information. That's Dr. Juan Costafont, Associate Professor of Health Economics in the Department of Health Policy at LSE. I asked him, does optimism bias have an effect on our health? Optimism bias does help people to cope with adversity. Uh, It helps individuals to reduce anxiety. Uh, It helps individuals to open up for new ideas. It has positive effects on health. We know that optimist individuals tend to live longer. They tend to be in better health, particularly better cardiovascular health. And unless individuals have a completely unrealistic optimism with regards to the consequences of their actions, they tend to engage in less uh, risky behaviors, such as they sleep more, they smoke less, and and more generally, uh, they are more resilient. They they recover earlier from from setbacks, and and examples would include uh, patients that uh, suffer from cancer or diabetes. Uh, And then they tend as well to to have stronger social ties, which again act as as scoping mechanisms uh, to overcome adversity. You've researched how people perceive their own individual life expectancies. How much did optimism have to do with how long people believe that they're going to live? What we find is that individuals' longevity perceptions often deviate from the, let's say, average ones for an, an individual's age. So an individual who's age 80 you know, should expect to live, let's say, four extra years according to life tables. And if they expect to live more than that, then we define them as, as optimistic. We tend to classify individual optimism as realistic optimism and unrealistic optimism. Realistic optimism results when individuals have private information that allows them to make better choices despite that choice and that information deviates from that of the average individual in in the society they live. So individuals that see themselves that they've already survived to a certain age and they see themselves uh, healthy, uh, they tend to be more optimistic. And we know that optimism does play a role in both financial and and health decision making. So individuals are less likely to smoke. And even when it comes to engaging in financial decision making, if you expect to live longer and to basically uh, bear the consequences of, of your financial and health decisions, then you will probably be more prudent as a result. So it might well be that that optimism is not uh, totally unrealistic. What we did in our study, not in this particular one, but in a follow-up, is we compared longevity optimism with what is called meteorological optimism. So we asked individuals about about the weather and we looked at uh, the objective evidence on the weather of that particular day the question was reported and we can compute a measure of meteorological optimism and what we see is that longevity optimism influences health behavior whilst meteorological optimism doesn't influence health behavior so that basically means that there are domains of optimism so rather than just thinking about optimism as a happy-go-lucky situation where somebody is optimistic always in every domain and in every scenario uh, reality shows that or evidence shows that uh, we tend to be optimistic or pessimistic in a different way in different domains. So realistic optimism may help us make healthier and happier choices. But what of unrealistic optimism? I asked Tali Sharat about the ups and downsides of the optimism bias. There are 
both benefits and costs to having the optimism bias. Having positive expectations is, on average, good for your physical and mental health. It is also beneficial for motivation. If you think, oh, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna succeed on this project. I'm gonna do really well. I'm gonna succeed at work. Well, you try harder. Um, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because your expectations alters your actions and your actions alters your outcome. Now, on the negative side, if we underestimate our risk, we might not take precautionary action. You might not wear a helmet when you should, when you ride your bike. You might not buy insurance in situations where it is actually advisable. Uh, you might not go to medical tests and so on. If we talk about finance, for example, um, there are quite a few economists who named the optimism bias as one of the factors uh, contributing to the 2008 financial collapse, where many people had optimistic expectations of the market. Market, uh, anywhere from just your average person to financial advisors, people, people in government. It can cause you to underestimate how long things will take to complete. People often underestimate how much budget they need for their projects as well. These harmful effects of underestimating risk have been echoed by Professor David Demiza, Professor of Management in the Department of Management at LSE. He's researched the effects of unrealistic optimism on entrepreneurship. If optimists take poor decisions and, you know, a really big decision is to become an entrepreneur, then optimists may overestimate their ability to run a business. They may overestimate having found a suitable market niche to start a business up in. And that's what we find in the data. Optimists earn less when they start businesses, when they become self-employed, than pessimists do. Now you might say, well, that sounds like it's better to be a pessimist when it comes to starting a business. But although for a pessimist starting a business, you know, on average, they found something really good, they may have overlooked opportunities that are good enough and they ought to have taken. You know, you can just be too cautious in uh, taking decisions. So there is possibly an argument for saying the best thing is in between optimism and pessimism, namely realism. Okay, so realism might be beneficial for our personal business prospects. But you've also researched the effects of optimism, pessimism and realism on people's well-being. What did you find there? You know, the big issue is how do you measure optimism, unrealistic optimism, unrealistic pessimism? So, you know, we wanted to do it in uh, a real setting and over the long term. And there is a data source, uh, the British Household Panel Study. This study asked people to forecast their income and then to report what their income actually was year on year. So from those two measures, you can look at the errors people make in their forecasts. An unrealistic optimist is somebody who is constantly over-predicting their income. A pessimist is somebody who is constantly under-predicting their income. So over a 16-year period, we can look at, for each individual, their average optimism or pessimism. The survey also asked people about their health and about their self-reported life satisfaction. We can see what is the relationship between optimism, measured admittedly as financial optimism, and 
two measures of welfare. And what we find is it is people who are reasonably accurate in their forecasts who have the highest well-being. Both optimists and pessimists tend to have lower well-being. Of the sample that you looked at, how many people did show these realistic tendencies? Well, you know, it depends on just how wide you say the realistic interval is. can't say realist is somebody who gets it right in every one of the 16 years that the study covers, but it is admittedly a minority of people that are realistic. I think about two-thirds of our sample were on the optimistic end, and that reflects general research in optimism. So why do you think that realists do best? So we can't directly answer that from our study, but the first merit of realism is you're likely to take better decisions if you're basing your decisions on accurate information. And by definition, you know, a realist has accurate information, uh, accurate beliefs, whereas optimists and pessimists don't. Optimism possibly has good psychological benefits during the time that you're optimistic, but maybe, uh, you know, when your beliefs fail to measure up to reality, then you get disappointed, and that can be uh, quite uh, upsetting. And then pessimism, expecting the worst to happen, you know, that's maybe not psychologically uh, terribly comfortable either. So, you know, no necessity that realism has to be uh, the best outcome in terms of well-being, but this is what our data seem to suggest. Okay, so I've certainly realised through researching for this podcast that I put too many things on my to-do list every day. And even though it's very rare for me to ever cross everything off, each morning, if I'm honest with myself, I still truly believe that I'm capable of doing everything. I also probably have a tendency to overestimate my personal finances. Even though I can look at the data, I know how much I spend month on month. I think I might be a bit of an unrealistic optimist. Are there any things that I can do to help me become more of a realist? Okay, so this is uh, quite an issue. This isn't directly saying if you're an optimist, you would do better to become a realist. That's a more subtle question which we didn't investigate. You know, if your psychology is such that you are an intrinsic, unrealistic optimist, it is possible that kind of forcing yourself to be more realistic will not necessarily help you if it's going against your natural instincts. And secondly, the research has found it's not that easy to change your general outlook on things. You know, you can maybe get external opinion on big decisions. You know, secondly, it's probably a good thing when you have a big decision to explicitly ask, how can this go wrong? You know, so try and force yourself to think about the downside, which optimists find rather difficult to do. 
and you know maybe more in a business setting but in other settings too you know try and not surround yourself too much by yes people you know genuinely try and encourage critics you know don't get angry with them don't fire them but listen to what they have to say i asked tally sharrett the same question let me give you actually an example from the from the public domain um, from the British government, who really have taken the correct approach and measures to to overcome this problem that you are um, detailing. So the British government has the Green Book, which is a book of recommendation for project appraisers, and in the book they say. Look, there's an optimism bias. They define what it is, and they say as a consequence, people tend to underestimate how long projects will take and how much they will cost. And so we recommend that all the projects in the government will be corrected for the optimism bias. And the way that they suggest to do it, there's actually a long PDF, but the the idea is relatively simple. They say, okay, look at at similar projects, look at the estimation, the predictions of cost and duration of those similar projects, look at the outcome of duration and cost of these projects, calculate the average bias, and then add that bias um, to the project that you're working on. And they actually did this for the 2012 Olympic budget. And that is exactly the right approach because these biases that we have, and optimism bias is just one of them, they have evolved over millions and millions of years. They are very difficult, if not impossible, to alter. But what you can do is you can mitigate the negative consequences of these bias. If you know what they are, then we can think them through. We can say, okay, given that I have an optimism bias, where can that lead to negative outcomes for me, right? Think through and you can say, well, it might lead to me under budgeting my own finance. It might need lead to me not leaving enough time for me to get to places that I need to go to. That's why I'm always late and so on. So you identify the possible negative outcomes and then you can say, okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a policy in place in order to correct my actions to make the outcomes better. I'm not changing the way that I think. If I have a bias that causes me to think that I'm probably not going to get stuck in traffic and I'm going to get on time to all my meetings, it's really hard to change that belief. But I can put a policy in place by which, you know, I always put the alarm clock to go five minutes earlier for me to leave, right? So I'm kind of making some changes. Many of us may be optimistic about our health, our money, our career prospects and our time. But, collectively, we often despair about the state of the world. Why can't our private optimism seep into the public domain? Optimism kicks in when individuals uh, have some sense of control, when they have some sense of agency. Dr. Juan Costafont conducted a piece of research in 2009 that looked at how people perceive risks to themselves and risks to society with different levels of intensities. So in that study, what we did is we computed optimism by comparing how individuals assessed a number of technologies and particularly how they assess the risk to themselves as well as the risk to society and the environment. And we were looking at, at GM foods, uh, mobile phones, gene testing, radioactive waste, and we looked as well at climate change. What we were finding in the study is that individuals are more optimistic with with regards to GM food uh, and mobile phones than they are with regards to radioactive waste or or climate change, right? Uh, And that is because with GM food and and mobile phones, they have control and they have more knowledge. They they do see uh, an object. Uh, or they, they can identify GM food with a particular uh, product, whilst 
when it comes to climate change or radioactive waste, there is very little agency that individuals have. They might just perceive that uh, they are suffering what is called the tragedy of the commons, that uh, their individual actions make no difference. And, and that explains why, why, why they are less optimistic and they don't engage as a result in, in risk protective behaviors. Whilst uh, on, on those, let's say, objects where individuals have more agency, they, they can control the consequences, individuals tend to accept more the, the risks. They might actually develop like the proper uh, risk perceptions and then, and then engage in, in, in risk protective behaviors in a, in a much more active way. If we feel we have control over an object or a situation, we can be more optimistic about it. However, 2020 left us grappling with giant new risks to our health and our societies and with very little sense of control. I asked Yuan what his findings can tell us about how people are responding to the pandemic. So what we can infer from my own research is that optimism affects uh, new and old risks differently. So all risks individuals feel that they have more control of because they have more knowledge. So what we could do uh, with, uh, with regards to new risk is provide uh, better uh, knowledge, better communication, better information, basically, to, to, to bridge that knowledge gap that allows individuals to represent the consequences of risk. So right now, uh, when it comes to new risks, all we can do is just conceptualize in an abstract way what does, let's say, COVID-19 mean? What does a pandemic mean? Whilst when communication uh, has been successful, uh, we know it because, because it does change how people conceptualize a risk and they, they can represent it in terms of like individuals that passed away or disruptions in the economy. Uh, so there, there is actually a way that individuals can conceptualize and visualize the consequence of, of, of an action and, and what those actions are. Optimistic individuals, when they face a pandemic, they do see, let's say, the light uh, after the tunnel, right? So uh, it does allow them to cope better uh, with the effects of the pandemic than, 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 than less optimistic people cope. Uh, and, and, and that means that the, the, the mental well-being of optimistic people, it's likely to be better. They are less likely to suffer from anxiety and, and, and depression, amongst other conditions. Tali Sharat has also been researching the effects of optimism bias and unrealistic optimism on people's responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. We've done study, but so have many other people showing exactly the same results. We have all found that people on average have an optimism bias in terms of their likelihood of getting infected. In particular, most people on average say they are less likely to be infected than others their age and gender. Now, because we survey a representative sample of individuals, that cannot be accurate, right? The question, of course, is how is it affecting behavior? There is a little bit of good news here. So one one thing we found is, yes, you have an optimism bias in how you think you're going to be in, infected. But we also see that people believe, and it, it, at least they did at the beginning of the pandemic, that the virus is quite a severe danger to the population of the human race. And so they are not optimistic regarding the global consequences. And people tend to be privately optimistic, but publicly not so much. But what's interesting is that we did some analysis to see 
what determines people's、uh, behavior to mitigate risk? What actually determines whether I'm socially distancing, washing my hands, putting mask on, and so on? And we actually found that the、um, perception of the danger to the people around me matters more than my perception of the danger to myself. So people、um, engage in these、uh, mitigating behaviors mostly in the protection of others,、um, and and that I, I think there's something kind of encouraging about that, which is interesting, and it actually、um, aligns well with the messaging in the UK. So、um, in the UK, the message was stay at home, protect our NHS, and save lives. The focus was take action in order to save. Others. It wasn't about save your own life. It was about save lives, save the NHS, and that messaging was extremely powerful. It had a, it had a huge effect. However, as time goes on, people's beliefs about the risk、um, is actually going down, partially because on a day to day, most people are not experiencing the negative consequences of COVID. Of course, a lot of people have died and have been affected. But that's just on an average. People are not actually personally experiencing that, and when you are not personally experiencing negative consequences, your brain just automatically assumes that the danger is smaller. There have been reports detailing how many people are convinced that they've already had COVID nineteen. People who very possibly haven't, and including those who think that they had it before the virus was actually officially discovered. Why do you think this is? So the first、um, easy answer to this is that when we are thinking about and hearing about something so much, we will automatically make connections in our mind. Right? We've been reading and hearing and talking about COVID nineteen twenty four seven for the last whatever months, and of course, then if you get a little sniffle or whatever, you straight away will connect it with COVID nineteen because that's what's in your mind. Right? That's just some、um, kind of an availability heuristic. Now there's another、um, angle to this, which is that we may want to believe that we had it already, because if you did have it and you've gotten over it、um, relatively easily, or you know, without needing to be to go to the hospital, well, this could be some could be good news because it means a that you're probably the type of person that can get through it, and b maybe you have some immunity now, right? So、um, a lot of people want to believe. That they had it because of those kind of conclusions, and we know from our research on many different domains that people are much more likely to believe those things that they want to believe. So, if the follow-up to having had COVID was a more severe version of the virus, people wouldn't be believing that they'd had it. Absolutely, yes, yes.、Um, I believe that if the message was if you've had COVID before, the likelihood of you having it again. Is higher and the severity will be higher, so you're at higher risk. Then people would not make that assumption. I asked David Demiza, "Should we be optimistic?" My belief is the evidence is no. We're better off being realistic. Many people say, "Unless you're an optimist, you'd never do anything." I think it is true that being an optimist. May sometimes encourage you to do something that you wouldn't do if you were more realistic. The question is, should you do it? And、uh, you know, almost by definition, 
you know, you should only do the things that seem worthwhile when you assess them rationally. So I don't really hold with this view that uh, you have to be an optimist in order to get anything done, because the real question is, is it worth your while doing those things? And yes, optimism gives you hope, but it also gives you disappointment if it turns out that what you are hoping for doesn't materialise. Are you an optimist? No. No, that's possibly why I got interested (laughs) in the area quite a long time ago. Ah, I don't understand. How can people be so optimistic? (laughs) So you're a pessimist? I think I'm a pessimist in general, yes. Here's Dr. Joanne Costafont. I think that there is always a reason why people do some research or why people engage in a particular research project. And personally, I think that uh, being optimistic helps me in my personal life. Should we be optimistic? I do think that we should all be optimistic uh, because it, it, is, it is a fact that, that we all go through adversity in life. And being optimistic is just a coping mechanism that helps us overcome the difficulties, particularly stress and anxiety, that going through adversity entails. I asked Tali Sharit the same question. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the only, only way to live. Um, so I, I'm kind of rewording a quote from Alma Stavursky, which one of my collaborators actually likes to quote, saying that if you're a pessimist, you suffer twice. One is, well, you have the negative expectations, and the second is when you have the negative outcomes. So yes, we should be optimistic. So, this cognitive bias that causes most of us to have private optimism can have positive and negative consequences on our lives. But, Is optimism an accurate lens through which to view the world? Doom scrolling. It means scrolling through doom. And it's a new trend that's emerging. People who are spending a lot of time on their smartphones or computers reading one grim story after another. After a year where many of us have waded through tides of frightening news, and when research suggests we are increasingly pessimistic about our collective future, it can feel impossible to know how to regard the state of things. Should we be optimistic or pessimistic about where the world is headed? It's hard to argue that any generation in the history of humanity wouldn't want what we have right now. That's Dr. Chris Katana, author of Age of Discovery, navigating the risks and rewards of our new renaissance. The renaissance a time of scientific, artistic, intellectual and human discovery half a millennia ago, marked the shift in Western history from the medieval to the early modern era. Chris's book, written in 2016, argues that we are living through a comparable period of history. I asked him about the case for optimism today. In the past 50 years, in aggregate sense, there are twice as many of us and and we are all better off. We're living longer, with, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the mortality table is affected by, you know, what in historical terms will be the blip of COVID-19. But, you know, life expectancy is accelerating basically globally. Economically, you know, certainly the picture is complicated when you dig into it in a region by region and country by country picture. But in an aggregate, extreme poverty has been plummeting over the past 40, 50 years or so. And, you know, education has been expanding. That's a general story by like the big aggregate measures of progress, health, wealth, education, 
things have never been better. And I suppose what that rosy picture glosses over then becomes the argument for the other side. Doesn't it gloss over how systemic sort of humanity endangering risk has also been amplified by the same forces? And, and now we have this, you know, pregnant example in all our minds of COVID-19 that the very investments we've made to enrich life, to enrich opportunity and possibility uh, have also made this the best time in history to, to be a virus. We can talk about climate change. We can talk about nature. We can talk about sort of all of these black swan events that have become more probable. We are so fixated on the direct costs of this pandemic. We haven't even begun to really come to terms with the echo pandemics that are going to shape us, challenge us, destabilize us in 2021 and beyond, which is you know, a, a, just a pandemic of, of economic and, and business destruction, the pandemic of mental health. And then, you know, as we've seen um, in very recent memory, the pressures on our social and political systems. I think it's very easy to make an aggregate argument for optimism. And I think those who, are, who have the resources to be resilient aren't fully appreciating the costs for those who are vulnerable. As much as it looks rosy from that perspective, uh, it looks terrifying from this perspective. And I think that that balance of perspectives and, and straddling it is really the work that we need to do because you know optimism is naive and pessimism, I think, is unnecessarily defeatist. Do you believe that we're living through a new renaissance? The short answer is yes. In some ways, we've been here before. We've been at times where political and economic and social and technological change all seems to be converging. And the society that entered into that moment and the society that left it are two very different societies. And I think that is an appropriate kind of scale to be thinking about what we're going through is a, is a, is a change of, of age. And, you know, honestly, I suppose in the years since the book has been published, in my mind, it's only become more relevant. This underlying lesson that fundamentally what we need to do is widen our expectations of what might happen. You know, there's a, there's a chapter on pandemic risk in this book and then, you know, wake up to 2020 and think, oh my God, yeah, there we go again. I think that certainly in the historical memory, renaissance and optimism are two very closely related terms. But historically, it's better to think about it as uh, a renaissance is a contest for the future when the stakes are, are very, very high. We all really need to lean in to this moment and take the stakes that are on the table very, very seriously because they're going to shape in some pretty dramatic ways what, what the next several centuries of life on this planet are going to look like. So how can looking at the first Renaissance allow us to navigate these times that we're living through? The central value of thinking about the present in a Renaissance framework is about widening our set of expectations of what we might have to grapple with in our role, in our country, in our organizations. <laughs> We're constantly being taught by the world that just when we think we've kind of figured it out to the point that, okay, now we know how it works. Let's, let's scale it up 
and just do more of that. Then something happens, then we realize that, oh, no, we haven't figured it out at all yet. We need to grow. I think of the possibilities for sort of society to, to reach a higher state of kind of self-awareness through, through what we've just been through. And so concrete example, we live in a moment which is so enamored with technology as the driver of change and progress that up until recently and, and, and still today, but like the, the tech titans are these kind of visionaries who are going to show us the way to the future. And, and then in, in 2020, you know, so many people are forced to work from home, mainly thinking in kind of a professional white collar setting in, in, in that context, but people working from home, communicating virtually, and, and so many people kind of embarrassed to say it in the midst of so much pain and crisis, but so many people in, in quite honestly saying like, I'm happier now. I love the new freedom and flexibility that working from home has enabled me to do. Well, that technology was there three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. So why didn't we choose then to make a change to adopt a technology that so many people agree makes their life better? And the answer, of course, is that because it's precisely the point that technology by itself does not drive change, does not drive progress. So much of this is cultural. So much of this is social. So much of this has to do with the power of, of ideas to move us off of what we take for granted. So, Chris, should we be optimistic? I think what irks me about the framework of optimism and pessimism is it kind of puts us in observer status on our world, right? Kind of look at the stuff that's happening to me, happening at me, and do I think things are going to get better or worse for me? And again, you know, I think we can reach to recent history in 2020 and say to ourselves, that's probably just never how it is. You know, the, the objective view in a world of a pandemic doesn't exist. It's, it's all subjective. I'm in it. We're all in it. All of us who are still here, we have been gifted this extraordinary invitation to take part, to recognize that none of us are observers and to start asking of ourselves, of our organizations, of our communities and countries and society, what do I have energy for? What does affect me? We really are going to serve ourselves and serve our world much, much better if we recognize that the chief task of our age is one of exploration. Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ. This episode of LSEIQ was produced by me, Natalie Abbott. This episode was based, in part, on the following research. The Optimism Bias, Why We're Wired to Look on the Bright Side, by Tali Sharat. Neither an optimist nor pessimist be, mistaken expectations lower well-being. And Why Optimism and Entrepreneurship are Not Always a Good Mix for Business, by David Demisa and Chris Dawson. Optimism and the Perception of New Risks, by Elias Mosialos, Caroline Rudisil, and Yuan Costafont. Explaining Optimistic Old Age Disability and Longevity Expectations, by Montserrat Costafont and Yuan Costafont. And Age of Discovery, Navigating the Risks and Rewards of Our New Renaissance, by Chris Katana and Ian Golding. For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSE IQ in your favourite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review as this makes the podcast easier for new listeners to discover. Mm-hmm.